This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Our guest on this episode, Victoria Bellim, is a Ukrainian-born, American-raised Financial Times columnist whose new memoir, The Rooster House, has been described as wild swans for Ukraine. The book tells the story of her return to Ukraine in 2014 to uncover the mystery of her missing great-uncle, a man who vanished in the 1930s and of whom her family were reluctant to speak. She sat down with Esme Bright to tell us more. I was wondering, before we get into everything, could I ask you to outline what set you off on your journey? Because the book's almost sort of part detective story, as well as a very beautiful and evocative family memoir. It started in 2014 when um, Russia annexed Crimea and when the conflict started in eastern Ukraine. And uh, for me at the time, it was really the first time that I had to question, what was I? I grew up in a family that's very multinational, multicultural, Russian, Ukrainian, Azeri, Armenian, Belarus, uh, Belarusian. And for us, you know, the question of ethnic identity was never central in our family. It was just, uh, just really never important. And uh, for myself, I never classified myself along any ethnic or national lines. And uh, even when I came to the U.S., it kind of did not seem like a relevant thing. Mm. But in 2014, the war in 2014 was not about ethnicity, but it was about control. And yet all these questions of what Ukraine meant to me, what, uh, uh, what did Russia mean to me, if anything, it became central. And I wanted to find out what, uh, what was you know, my story, what was Ukrainian story? And at the same time, as all these events were taking place, these large traumatic events were taking place, I was really seeking comfort and support from my family. And, uh, and mostly I received it until I came to my uncle Vladimir. He's my father's uh, older brother, and uh, he's been living outside of Ukraine. He moved to Israel in the 90s. And I sort of naturally, naively uh, assumed that he would take my side or he would, let's say, let's call it simply pro-Ukrainian side. However, 
he uh, turned out to think in a completely different way. Uh, his stance was very much supporting of Putin, Putin's actions um, in every way possible. And his arguments were based on interpretations of history and events that were uh, both outlandish to me and just simply incomprehensible. It uh, would take me uh, a long time to really come to terms with it. And But in 2014, when we first had these series of conversations that resulted in a deep uh, rift between us, I simply wasn't prepared. And it, his words that were, were very hurtful made me realize that I really do not understand as much about Ukraine as I thought I did. And uh, it really launched me on this process of rediscovery about Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian history, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian past. And that's how I came across a family mystery that turned out to be this catalyst that really pushed me to come back to Ukraine and spend a significant period of time there. Yes, you discovered a note in your great-grandfather's diary about your it's his brother who went missing, which is a really stirring moment, I have to say, when you find that underlined note that he he was missing. But as you say, it starts with this conflict with your uncle Vladimir. And does he still see himself as very like ethnically Russian and has that kind of quite static view of identity compared to yours? Or, or has his points changed at all recently? His view of identity is more Soviet rather than specifically mm-hmm. Russian. And because of that, uh, he he found any expressions of nationalism, including Russian nationalism, I have to say, somewhat um, uh, jarring. Uh, Mm. And yet somehow he's able to justify it in the context of Russia and in the context of Ukraine, uh, he can't. But it's true that our identities, the way we defined ourselves, were very different. you know, part of it is the time where uh, when we grew up, I grew up during period last uh, years of the Soviet Union when the whole system was collapsing and uh, Vladimir, you know, his formative years fell on the afterward period after Second World War when there was a very different sentiment in the air. So, and I think he was proud of, uh, you know, being a Soviet citizen. And for him, the loss of the Soviet Union was a major disaster. I think something you do mention, though, at the beginning is, I think it's definitely true, is that in the West, there does seem to be a sort of lingering romanticization of the USSR. Even people who weren't living under the sort of Soviet regime at the time, like your uncle. And I mean, do you find that troubling or is that just people, as people do, having a kind of incorrect nostalgia for history that potentially wasn't wasn't actually all that rosy. I find it troubling in the sense that in the countries of the former Soviet Union, that Soviet past still remains undigested, unprocessed. Mm. And you find examples of the Soviet nostalgia, you know, very striking. In Ukraine, it exists in Central Asia, in such a great extent, considering, you know, how much these countries uh, suffered during the regime. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, yet, of course, nostalgia is a very powerful force, and we see it at play in many political movements, political events around us, from Brexit to Trump, uh, etc. It's very easy to harness, and you know, we tend to think about the past times when uh, we were, you know, times that we were younger or times that. Uh, of our childhood is somehow this gilded special time, but it's it's not always the case. You call nostalgia a, a disease in the book, and then Soviet nostalgia is a, a special kind of pathology at one point. But I think you you show an excellent job of history being fluid in the region as well, because people might have lived in the same country, but they didn't experience the same history because they existed in different contexts. But I wondered with yourself, you know, you had your own process of self-identification. You grew up speaking Russian and Ukrainian. You moved to the States. You now live in Brussels. But through this whole process, what what would you say it means to you to be Ukrainian? Through that whole process, I came to realize that, you know, what made Ukrainian, Ukrainian identity was really just a combination of uh, all these factors that to me, Ukrainian identity was not something static. And the beautiful aspect of Ukrainian culture in general is the way it coexists with many different cultures. And uh, where in Ukraine, especially in modern Ukraine, it's very tolerant uh, society. I mean, it has uh, issues um, before the war, but generally it's a place where people could exercise their freedom of religion, expression quite freely and there was this uh, aspect uh, that I found very compelling when I first returned and the way people related to each other too. That's uh, curiosity about each other and uh, just this warmth and very communal feeling. So you definitely feel the society is really organized along you know, these lines of community, family. That becomes very obvious when you travel in Ukraine. And you went back in 2014 and you lived with your grandmother and a large part of the book details your grandmother and your family tending to your cherry orchard and it seems that protecting and cultivating land is also very central to the identity of your own family and it's so beautiful the way you use growing food and gardening as a way to talk about how communities are structured but also it's a it's sort of I suppose it's a form of control because it's you know you can subsist off the land that you grow but it's also a way of looking forward it's planning for the future hoping for spring and is that very much embedded in your own like personal calendar and way of being thinking about land and seasons you know that's a very interesting observation and you're absolutely right there is the key aspect as i discovered too of ukrainian identity is that attachment to the land And uh, when I first came to Ukraine and uh, I really assumed my grandmother would drop everything and she would spend uh, time with me and we would talk around tea and, uh, you know, discuss (laughs) the past and all these uh, mysteries that I wanted to uncover. Not so. (laughs) Not so. She was not interested in the slightest. She was, in fact, on the first day I was back, she, the first thing she did, she prepared breakfast for me. And then she was off uh, to talk about gardens with her neighbor. And uh, I did not see her until later in the evening. And that went on for 
for several weeks because that was during the planting season and planting, the planting season is key. That's what you do. You take care of the land. That's number one priority. And it's just, it's such a key responsibility. And um, at the time I thought it was incomprehensible. I thought she did not want to spend time with me. I took it rather personally, but uh, um in spending time with her, especially over the years, as uh, spending time with her, joining her in the orchard, helping her, uh, becoming her apprentice farmer, and uh, ruining my back, but uh, being happy <laughs> <laughs> because I could be with her. And she was most open during those moments when we were working together, most frank. And uh, it really discovered so much what it meant, uh, what the land meant to her. And my grandmother was someone, uh, she's all her life, she was interested in art. She was an avid art and book collector. And then uh, this land became her responsibility when her parents passed away. And um, for someone else, perhaps uh, the question would be to sell the land and to move uh, to the city and, you know, handle it that way. But for her, it was not even, it never even existed as an option. So she sold her apartment in the city. She moved to, to the countryside and she became a full-time farmer. And then uh, when I would travel throughout Ukraine, I found the same, uh, the same kind of pattern. People were very much attached to their land, if they had any. And uh, the, you know, taking care of the land was really number one priority. Mm -hmm. So in a way, when I see how Ukrainians are, you know, standing up to protect their land, it just, to me, that's the echo of uh, those Valentinas, Valentina's obsessions and her dedication to her orchard. Mm. It's um, it's it's funny you talk about people, you know, talking about politics, and then the next minute they're talking about planting tomatoes and how things are growing. And I think it was um, it's just what happens, isn't it? In times of the most devastating conflict, people's lives still continue. There's still laundry to be washed. There's still seeds to be planted. And I think you. You captured that well, but I know in your other career, you write about scents. And I think quite naturally for someone who writes about something so evocative, but quite intangible, you also write very vividly about food. Uh, you talk about making, is it Pasca, the Easter brioche? Yes. And you drink tea with jam in it when you feel unwell. And food, food is such a vital means of connection with home and with history. But I think it's it's been really amazing to see the way that food has also been used at the moment, I think, to educate non-Ukrainians about Ukraine. There have been some amazing initiatives because of that. And um, I sort of wondered what you thought about that, about how people have been using that as a means to understand your country and sort of connect with you, with your people. Well, to me, I find Ukrainian cuisine is one of Ukraine's uh, hidden treasures. There's so little known about it. And so much of Ukrainian, you know, Russian, Ukrainian culture in general is very much conflated, you know, in people's minds. But I think Ukrainian cuisine is really fantastic. It's uh, even through, throughout my travels in different regions, uh, of Ukraine, I discovered different dishes, different ways that people prepare, prepare the same dish. 
And as someone who is interested in sense and these sensory aspects, it was fascinating. But also you can see how people use food as a way to welcome you into their home, into their community. And everything is really revolves around feeding others, feeding you know, their family, guests, uh, sharing food. Um, it's very generous and open approach. And I think throughout, through Ukrainian uh, cuisine, you can really understand so well Ukrainian culture and its history because Ukraine is a place of crossroads. So different ideas, different influences meet and in cuisine, it becomes very clear. But also Ukrainian cuisine is, it's about making your, your very strong seasons. And so there's a lot of different clever ways to make the most of the land you know there's pickling for winter there's amazing fresh food in the summer and as you say it's at a crossroads so there's sort of lots of different food being brought in from different places it's um it's so beautiful but you you mentioned then hospitality being really important and part of your travels you know you went to lots of different villages where your family were from and you kind of you know you walked the steps that you're great-grandmother would have taken you have found the school where the, the site of the school where she would have taught but people were very hospitable to you traveling around meeting new family and um, I wondered if you could talk about that it's sort of your, your your journey for finding more about finding out more about your family you used archives but also it's really speaking to people in in villages about memory being kept alive these travels were uh, really incredible. I mean, it sounds kind of grand, life-changing, but really it was. Mm. One, to discover how open people were, how hospitable, how just uh, generous with their time, with anything that they had. And even if they mm. had very little, they would just offer you something. And it was really touching. And also just to speak to people, because sometimes... Uh, you would start talking about the past and uh, uh, all these memories would come uh, rushing back. And uh, I remember traveling in one of the villages in central Ukraine and meeting an elderly lady at the bus stop. And she was wearing this beautiful embroidered shirt and dark um, uh, sunglasses and uh, <laughs> I love that combination kind of rock and roll uh, grandmother yeah. <laughs> stylish <laughs> so we started talking and she was telling me how she's uh, 90 years old how she does yoga every day and etc etc and uh, then uh, I don't remember how the discussion uh, got on the famine, the great famine of, of the 1930s, uh, Holodomor. And mm. she told me, she started telling me a story that um, from her family. And she was, of course, quite little during that time, but there were certain stories that uh, she remembered her uh, mother telling her. And she started crying. It was just something that she vaguely remembered and yet the pain was so real and acute and mm. I remember it touched me so deeply it really just uh, the extent of that emotion was all-encompassing. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. 
I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wow. The story is really threaded by women in your book as well, because women serve as memory keepers after men have gone to war. And there's a lot of um, sort of inherited fear and trauma that even you yourself felt, you know, if I can ask you about the, the rooster house in the title, you sort of have a fear of this building based on something that your great grandmother suffered from as well so much has passed down I think um you can see in the book that you're kind of working through all of that but would you mind kind of explaining the title uh the rooster house is um is the colloquial name for the former KGB headquarters in the town of Poltava it's a former bank that was built at the turn of the 20th century and um, shortly after the Soviet Union was established it became basically the seat of the secret police and the mm. building was is definitely one of the most beautiful buildings in Poltava both in terms of its architecture and how well it was maintained ironically uh, but um, for us it was always a representation of something dark and horrible and all of us avoided going near the building if we could help it and for me i did not realize how strong that fear was until the possibility of having to go to the rooster house uh, became quite real and i realized i'm absolutely terrified of it I stood mm -hmm. on the opposite side of the street looking at the building and it's these beautiful sirens that the locals call roosters uh, that decorate its uh, facade. And it just, uh, my heart was pounding uh, and I really couldn't bear to cross the street and go to the building until I was pushed to the point where just another series of discoveries uh, happened that were uh, in themselves quite striking and shocking and kind of the impact of that was so strong that I finally went to the rooster house but it definitely uh, took me uh, some time to get to that point. And it sounds like a very um I, I googled it to see what it looked like and it is a very imposing building but you say that there was a sort of local I mean um, joke is the wrong word but sort of uh, you, people would say that you could see all the way to Siberia because the basements were were so deep that it was the tallest building there, even from the upside down. It's sort of you, you something dark emanates from it. I wondered how it was writing about that because 
as I say, you write about sense. So you're used to writing and sort of translating the intangible. But how did you find yourself writing about something so so slippery but so precious as your own history and your own identity and that sort of those those feelings? How was that process of writing? It just um, it came it came about as as I went on and uh, mm. the further I went on on this journey and uh, the the more it became the more kind of the the voice found itself mm. and uh, in some sense uh, it was a difficult process because as a political scientist I'm using. I'm used to researching topics uh, on political events, uh, difficult topics. I researched very sensitive topics such as corruption in the post-Soviet countries, so even a dangerous topic, you would say. But Mm. when you approach your personal history, it's a very different dynamic. It's a very different dialogue that you have with yourself. you know, how to convey it, uh, how to convey it to yourself, much less to someone else. That's That becomes a whole another question. And, uh, and ultimately, the process was, you know, the discovery of finding uh, one clue at a time, you know, putting together this puzzle that was the mystery of my great-grand-uncle Nikodim, and then even the, the whole mystery of um, our past uh, as a family. Mm. And you meet people along the way that that help you. And one of the people that you meet was, you call Pani Olga. And I wondered if you could talk about her because she just seems like the most incredible character, someone who really sees beauty in times of grief as well. Could you talk about her, please? Uh, Pani Olga is uh, is someone who taught me a lot. And I met her mm-hmm. by chance when I uh, went to a small church in Poltava, probably one of the least impressive churches uh, in town. And yet it was just this charming place and it was decorated with these beautiful embroideries. And it turned out that the custodian of these embroideries was this lady, uh, Pani Olga, who was born in Siberia, grew up in Novosibirsk, and came to Poltava when she got married. And uh, she lost her husband quite tragically, and she ended up working as a volunteer for uh, that local church. But her passion was embroideries and collecting these old embroideries, restoring them, uh, classifying them, and traveling to find more. And um, through these conversations about embroideries, I learned such a great deal about both Pani Olga and about Ukraine, what uh, these embroideries meant, and specifically uh, these particular embroideries called Rushniki. So Erushnik uh, means a hand towel. So it's a long, uh, uh, quite a long hand towel, um, rectangular in shape, and both ends are decorated with embroideries. And uh, different patterns, different colors have significance in different regions and different motifs exist. So it's about aesthetics, but also about uh, symbolism. And mm. uh, when... I saw uh, these objects, uh, they were so beautiful, so fragile. I mean, textile art is really one of the most fragile Mm. crafts. 
And uh, you see how people would preserve them, especially during the times such as anti-religion campaigns in the Soviet Union, when all of these items associated with uh, local culture and religion were prohibited and people would still protect them. It was really touching. But she sort of explains to you, she can she sort of sees a map of Ukraine in the different embroideries as well. She sort of says, you know, these are from this region because these people are, you know, they're slightly more fiery and feisty and they're using brighter colours and then elsewhere, different things. And, and then also at one point, one embroidery pattern is used in an area just because it came free with a bar of soap. <laughs> it was in a local <laughs> factory. And um, I loved that. I loved that. And you also met Nadia, who's another, well, I hope now, world famous embroiderer now that she has her UNESCO um, recognition. But could you also explain about the white on white embroidery and what that means in Ukraine? Nadia Bakulenko, yes, is one of the masters of Ukrainian embroidery, nationally recognized masters. And uh, she campaigned hard to have uh, Rishatilivka white and white embroidery, basically the particular technique from central Ukraine to be recognized as part of UNESCO uh, heritage. And this embroidery is really incredible. It looks like lace, it's, it's airy, it's light, it's done in white. Sometimes it's done in very like soft pastel shades. And there are numerous techniques that are used. And she was working for this government college where she was teaching with students how to embroider. But really her main passion was to protect this embroidery. And uh, these encounters with Nadia, with carpet weavers, with people who did other crafts, they were fascinating because people were working during that time, which was like an economic collapse, time of uncertainty, time when you don't know what tomorrow might bring. And even today, they continue working. They continue creating. Mm. It's phenomenal. When you were talking to Nadia, she's sort of saying that she really wants to get this UNESCO recognition, which I'm so glad to hear that she did as well. And she sort of says, I know it sort of might seem small when there are huge events happening and protests occurring, but actually preserving culture and craft is such an important thing to do. And I'm so glad that you mentioned so much of it in the book because it was such a joy to learn about this and the resilience of art and the persistence of beauty in conflict and chaos is, is a thread that runs throughout your writing. And there's one point when you mentioned that your grandmother, was it your great grandmother, your grandma, who'd keep perfume in her handbag just to smell it, not to wear it because that would be a waste, but just to smell it, to have a bit of beauty, even in such dark times. I think it's something that everyone can learn. And I wondered, do you sort of actively follow that example now? Is it possible for you to also kind of retain a sense of Ukraine's beauty even now? I think I think that's essential. And it was, you're right, it was my great-grandmother, Asia, who had a bottle of perfume, a small bottle of perfume, and a small tube of red lipstick in her purse. Mm. She did not use them, but she always had them. And she said it just helped her to survive during these unimaginably dark times, during the German occupation, during Second World War II. And uh, she instilled in me that appreciation for beauty and 
of course, you know, there are moments when, when you think, oh, this is frivolous, this is not important. But at the end of the day, you know, art, beauty, things that give you joy, you know, that's what makes life worth fighting for. That's, uh, and it's important to, to retain something that gives you support. I think uh, no matter where we are, when I talk to my, uh, to my friends in Ukraine, they do mention the small rituals that they've developed over these past uh, months, this past year. You know, some people uh, read poetry in the morning. Some people uh, take walks when it's possible. Some people, you know, grow flowers in their apartment just to bring a little bit of beauty. Otherwise, it just becomes kind of endless nightmare. As you put that so beautifully then, gosh, you even speak as, as beautifully as you as you write. And you write at one point, mourning a place is even more difficult than grieving a person. And I wondered if if I can ask, what, what's it like now to see places you love decimated by conflict and land changed? And, you know, the, the ecology as well is completely changing. I mean, it's just such a... It's devastating, but at some point I notice in myself, you know, you sort of learn to, to grow thicker skin and to, to really become more resilient because otherwise you really can't survive. Last year, uh, during in the beginning, when the invasion for, uh, just started and I would watch online this footage of buildings uh, being destroyed, cities being destroyed, places that I knew being in ruins, it was excruciating. And I remember I just, I, I felt it on a physical level. I, I was ill throughout uh, that spring and just I couldn't even identify what was ailing me. And uh, it just uh, felt so painful. But uh, over time, you realize, well, first of all, I have responsibility towards my family i have family who are still in ukraine friends who are still in ukraine and uh, who require help or support and i want to continue talking about ukraine because i feel you know we see so much about ukraine but we see it from the front lines we see we talk about war and the effect war has on these different places and which is an important topic but I think another very important discussion is that Ukraine, you know, it's, it's a country with so many aspirations. It has uh, such rich culture and that um, losing, you know, there is a threat that we lose more than just specific cities. We lose like a whole layer of culture and very unique uh, European culture. It's part of the European story. And before uh, we might lose it, before we have a chance to discover it, really. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You end the book by talking about the meaning of a Greek word, thalma. Is that how you say it? I have a lot of languages. Yes. It's so terrible. 
meaning an everyday marvel and it's a beautiful way to conclude the book because there is such so many small miracles that happen throughout your journey things pieces of paper that manage to survive and the embroideries that persist and also the 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 dignity and happiness of so many people that you talk to who you know they 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 find that beauty even in the darkest of times and I thought it was just such a wonderful message at the end but is that sort of something that you've managed to retain since writing the book it's very interesting that in Ukraine, you know, if you study Ukrainian history and culture, mm. and uh, Ukraine actually a place where many mystical movements originated, like the mm. Jewish uh, Hasidic movement originated in that part of the world, and uh, something, and also movements, mystical movements related to Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And so this mysticism is really part of Ukrainian culture. And, uh, and it becomes just uh, just clear once you start traveling and talking to people, how people are attached to these ideas. And you yourself start uh, thinking along the same lines. And it's very uplifting. It's, it's, you know, it gives you such a different perspective when you think of every moment as kind of this gateway to, to a miracle. And it makes, uh, makes you appreciate a life and its different uh, dimensions. It's mm. something that I've really learned uh, over uh, these journeys in Ukraine. Mm. But while you've developed a, a thicker skin, as you put it, and a resilience, I think a lot of the world has been quite astounded, really, by the the strength and the like confidence of Ukraine as well that the sort of the persistence at all times I think is something that, that a lot of people I think especially in Britain would would not have I don't know especially it may be expected from our own country and I wondered if it was the the way that the two interact I wondered if you felt like that was an essence of being Ukrainian you know you can accept the realities of something but it always rubs up against something much deeper something much more hopeful and if you felt like that was partly what it feels like to be Ukrainian is for the two to coexist all the time in a sense yes uh Ukraine especially in the 20th century was hit by uh one catastrophe after another and Mm. it's um you know first uh, world war and then Russian Revolution or Bolshevik Revolution civil war which is called Russian but that took place on Ukrainian soil and collectivization during the Soviet Union, Stalinist purges, a famine, war, occupation, famine, Chernobyl explosion, and of course, Afghanistan, Afghanistan wars that uh, drafted so many young Ukrainian men. It's really quite striking when you start, under, you know, start reading about it. Mm. And uh, it's uh, traumatic. That past is really painful. And yet somehow people found a way to to survive it. And the refrain that I always heard on my travels, and that was back in 2014, 2015, that we will survive, we will overcome. And uh, it really, for the rest of the world, uh, Ukraine was terra incognita, this kind of the post-communist suburb of Russia. 
and it bursts into people's consciousness with no story of its own. I think, uh, you know, Russia at least had some sort of story, you know, from the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union. People are familiar with Russian classics and art. But Ukraine, Ukraine was just this blank space. And suddenly Ukraine is not falling. The experts predicting that Kiev would fall in, you know, 48 hours. Weeks later, months later, Kiev is standing and uh, and people are still as resolved to protect their land. That's, um, yes, it's, for many people, it was a surprise. I think, uh, of course, uh, for me, in the sense, I cannot say that whether or not it was a surprise that it uh, happened the way it did, but uh, after these travels that I've done in Ukraine, it was less surprising because I saw this resilience in people in different aspects of their existence. Well, you sort of suggest in the book that you think that the world wasn't really paying proper attention to Ukraine, especially not in 2014, but I think as the world rightly is now, you know, you, your book has done something brilliant, though, in showing another side of it, as you say, not from the front lines, but from personalities and eccentricities and beauty and these stories. So thank you so much for writing this book. It was a real, it's a real joy to read it, but also it's a real joy to speak to you and to hear more about these wonderful, wonderful people in your family, I have to say. No, thank you very much. I mean, the support means a lot. It's something that I found uh, very inspiring and motivating is just seeing support of regular people. Even if sometimes the support of their government was lagging behind, just um, and people in the UK, the kind of reception they offered to Ukrainian refugees in the first month of invasion, that was just overwhelming. I'm, I'll be forever grateful for it. And uh, when you see see that from different parts of the world that's really quite touching yeah it really gives you mm-hmm. uh, hope for humanity <laughs> well we all have to have that victoria thank you so much thank you so much for speaking to me it's been a real pleasure thank you it was a pleasure for me too this episode starred victoria bellum and was presented and produced by esme bright i make the show with esme and we have help from nicole wong our editor is john doughty I mentioned at the start that Victoria's book The Rooster House has been described as Wild Swans for Ukraine. The author of Wild Swans, Yong Chang, has been on this podcast, as have memoirists and historians, including Blake Morrison, Peter Frankopan and Elena Yanaga. Find them all wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.